We've got a one-off uh, preach tonight, looking at a familiar story in Mark chapter 4 before we start a new series next week in the evenings, uh, looking at how we can handle God's Word better uh, and how we read different parts of Scripture. Um, but if you've got a church Bible, it's on page 1006, and it's the familiar story where Jesus calms the storm. So I'm going to read from chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion the disciples woke him and said teacher don't you care if we drown and he got up rebuked the wind and said to the waves quiet be still then the wind died down and it was completely calm he said to his disciples Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Thanks, Mark. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you love to speak to us in your word and that we can get to know you better. Lord, be with us this evening as we listen to your voice. Please challenge and change us. Help us to fall more deeply in love with you and to grow our faith and our trust in you. Amen. So, mistaken identity. We've all been caught out by it in the past. Uh, Whether you're the little child in the shopping center running after the wrong dad and grabbing the leg and then looking up with absolute horror that these genes do not belong to your dad. Or uh, perhaps this is the one I get busted with quite regularly is uh, waving to somebody you think you know on the other side of the road and you realize to your horror and maybe sometimes to your shame That's not who you thought it was. Uh, Mistaken identity. We've all come across that at some stage in our lives. I want to show a clip in a moment. And it's uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, good old Arnie, a bunch of uh, many jokes. But Arnie goes to visit Madame Tussauds to go and visit his wax model. And he replaces the wax model with himself and uh, folk are coming along to see Arnie the wax model and have a little surprise (coughs) mistaken identity those folk come along and they get more than what they expected today's passage is a little bit the same Uh, the disciples thought they knew who Jesus was um, but it turns out uh, that In reality, he is far better 
than what they first believed. And uh, we'll come we'll come to the passage um, in a moment. I think it'd be really good just for us to set a little bit of a, a background to help us as we think through uh, this passage. The first thing to remember is that Mark's gospel is written like a first century gospel tract. Mark has written those gospels so that we can get to know Jesus for who he really is. Another thing Mark uses quite well throughout the whole gospel is questions. Like a good teacher, Mark asks us questions to draw our attention to what he thinks is really important. He wants us to focus on that and he's trying to evoke from us what do we think about uh, that passage. And he does it and tries to shape us around his purpose. Take a look at Mark chapter 10, verse 25. It's the account of the rich young ruler. He's come to Jesus and asked him, what do I need to inherit eternal life? Jesus gives him the answer. And the rich young ruler turns away sad. Jesus replies to the crowd listening in verse 25. He says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And then here comes the question in verse 26. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? See, Mark wants us to answer that question. Who then can be saved? How can we save ourselves? He goes on to say that it's impossible with man, but with God, nothing is impossible. Mark incidentally gives us the answer in verse 45. He says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So Mark asks questions to point us in a certain direction and to come to an understanding of where he's going. The purpose of Mark's gospel is set out quite early in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark wants us to see that Jesus is God. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 starts off, In the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ the Son of God Son of God is a term we'll come back to in a moment but right from the onset it's showing us that Jesus is God the last thing to note as we come into this passage is that Mark divides very neatly into two halves the first half chapters 1 to 8 is looking at who is Jesus. Who is he? We'll see that he's the son of man, that he's the son of God. And we'll come back to that in a moment. In the last eight chapters, chapters 9 to 16, it looks at why did he come? What is his mission? So as we look at our passage, is to remember that we're in that first half We're trying to discover who Jesus is. The why he came, Mark is going to leave for later. But for now, we want to look at who is Jesus. And like Mark said already, this Mark, not that Mark, Mark said already that this is a well-known story, and it's a favorite. I love it because it tells us so much about Jesus. It tells us about his humanity, that he's tired enough to fall asleep on the boat 
during a massive storm. It tells us about his deity that is powerful enough to control creation. And it tells us about his love that is caring enough to help. So as we come into the story, Jesus is teaching the crowds and he's teaching them by using parables. Evening comes and they decide it's time to move on and they want to go across to the other side of the lake. A bunch of other boats join in the crossing. The disciples sailed. Jesus slept. Teaching is hard work. A huge storm comes up, uh, just about swamping the boat. And Jesus sleeps on. He's a tired man. The disciples are probably sitting with their buckets, chucking water out as fast as they can. And the faster they're chucking out water, the more water is coming in. They're doing whatever they can to keep the boat afloat. And so fearing for their lives, they need more hands to trim the sails, to do whatever sailors do to keep the boat afloat, chucking out water. So they go to Jesus. They go to Jesus to wake him up. And I think they're expecting him to grab a bucket and to help graft chucking the water out the boat. But as they wake Jesus, the disciples ask, I think we've had enough of Arnie, don't you? The disciples ask, teacher, don't you care if we drown? That's the first question Mark asks us. And of course the answer is, yes, Jesus cares. It's a simple answer. Jesus does care. And we're going to see that in the rest of the story. The disciples were giving Jesus a bit of a rebuke. And I'm sure they felt a little bit embarrassed in hindsight. To them, it must have looked like Jesus didn't care. And the disciples are full of fear. Their lives are at stake. Their lives are on the line. And what's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. Jesus is doing nothing about their situation. If Jesus is doing nothing at the time, then they must be thinking, well, surely he doesn't care. But now the disciples aren't just worried about their own hides. They're worried about everybody in the boat, including Jesus. They're saying, Jesus, we're all in trouble, and yet you are sleeping. Sometimes do you feel like Jesus is sleeping when life is hard, when you're facing a fear, when life is uphill or a mess or full of worries? Sometimes don't you feel like shouting, Jesus, don't you care? And it's the allegation that the world has against Jesus too. They say, if Jesus is God and Jesus is so powerful, why does he let so much pain and suffering happen in this world? But of course we know Jesus does care and so Jesus steps in. The poor disciples are terrified Jesus steps in. I can, I can just imagine Peter, the, the brash, self-assertive one, trying to pass Jesus a bucket as, as Jesus is kind of standing up. And Jesus just walks past him as he gets up. And he speaks those, those wonderful words. Quiet. Be still. And then we have a marvelous response from the wind 
and the waves. Take a look in verse 39. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. So Jesus doesn't stand on the boat, the most accurate weatherman of all time. He doesn't stand there waiting carefully for the right moment to think, okay, if I wait in a few, few more seconds, if I lie down a little bit longer, the storm's going to stop soon, I'll just get up, stay quiet, be still, and then everybody will think it's a miracle. We know that's not the case because this was a big storm. It was big enough that four of the, uh, four of the disciples were fishermen. The storm was big enough that these four and the rest of them were petrified. They were really scared and they knew that they were in danger. This isn't a small storm. But big storms don't just vanish overnight. Once the storm has passed, there's a swell. There's still movement going on in the sea. The wind takes a while to, to die down as the storm kind of moves over. It takes time for the surf to settle. But yet when Jesus calms this storm, it's quiet. And I love those words, completely calm. What the disciples are witnessing is a miracle. No swells, no choppy seas slowly settling. No, it's completely calm. The sea listened to Jesus as if the sea was a well-behaved puppy. You don't get many of those around. But it's as if Jesus says, lie down, and the storm just rolls over onto his back, puts his legs, pours up in the sky, and it's Jesus tickle his stomach. Jesus says, quiet, be still, and the storm just rolls over, stops straight away. Quiet, be still, and it is. By his actions, Jesus shows that he cares. Jesus, don't you care if we drown? Yes. When we're afraid, Jesus, do you care? Yes. Jesus, I'm scared. Don't you care? Yes. Jesus, I've lost my job. My aged parents are ill. Jesus, I'm getting the blood test results tomorrow. Do you care? Yes. Yes. Yes, Jesus cares. In John 11.35, we get a great picture of Jesus caring for his friends. Jesus sees his friends mourning the death of their friend and brother, Lazarus. Jesus sees this and he weeps. His heart is broken at their suffering. It breaks Jesus' heart to see you afraid and suffering. Again, in John's Gospel, chapter 15, we hear these words, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You see, we know Jesus cares because he calmed the storm. We know Jesus cares because he cried for his friends as they mourn the death of their friend. But we know Jesus cares because he went to the cross for us to right our wrongs. Think for a moment of your own fear or your own hurt. Then say in your mind, Jesus, don't you care if... Say your, say your fear. Fill in the blank. Jesus, don't you care if... 
And Jesus replies, yes, I do. I do care. I imagine Peter still holding onto the bucket with white clenched um, knuckles, just seeing everything that's going on. And then Jesus turns, Jesus is turned to ask a question. And throughout the Gospels, we, we realize if Jesus is going to ask a question, uh, somebody's in trouble. Jesus asks the disciples, he says, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? These guys have seen Jesus moving around and being in action. They still just don't quite get it. It's a case of mistaken identity. They haven't quite grasped yet who Jesus is. And maybe there's some of us that are in a similar kind of position. You know, Jesus is an interesting guy. A lot of good things to say. But we just haven't quite grasped it yet. So Jesus asks this question. And the answer is also simple. The answer is, they don't have faith. They're afraid because they don't have faith in Jesus. Jesus is saying to the disciples, well, if you had faith in me, well, then you wouldn't be afraid. But the thing about faith is, faith is only as powerful as the object or the person we put our faith in. Large faith in something, misguided faith, blind faith, uninformed faith, that's going to be useless. The size of your faith doesn't matter if your faith is in the wrong person. But Jesus tells us, doesn't he, that even small faith, a mustard seed-sized faith, is a mountain moving faith see Jesus doesn't expect the disciples to just have faith in some hocus pocus he wants them to have faith in him and in a moment we're going to see who he is do you remember the dad in Mark 9 whose son is possessed by the evil spirits take a look quickly Mark 9 and verse 24. So this father comes to Jesus, wanting Jesus to heal his son and cast out the demons. The, the father says to Jesus, if you can, you can heal him. And Jesus says, if I can. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. See, the father had faith, but it was small. But it was in Jesus. His faith was in Jesus. The boy is healed. Small faith in the right place. I don't know how many of you have seen Inside Out. I think we go into the mind of a little girl and we see all the different emotions running around, causing havoc in her head. And it's good fun watching how the... Uh, emotions interact between her parents and um, uh, her own emotions with themselves. But one of the great things is all the emotions speak and fear speaks in, uh, in Inside Out. Our fears speak to us. Our fears tell us, Grant, you're not in control. Our fears tell us that we aren't in control. The disciples are afraid in the boat 
because they aren't in control. All their efforts to save themselves amount to nothing. They're not in control of a situation and they're all going to die and they're scared. Our fears speak to us today and they say to us, you are not in control. We should listen to our fears because they're right. We aren't in control. The world likes to tell us that we are and that with positive thinking and the power of a positive mind, we can overcome the world if we just believe we can. Disney's been telling us those lies forever, haven't they? From Aladdin all the way to Frozen. Just believe in yourself, you can do it. Fear tells us we're not in control. Fear is the opposite of faith. We don't need self-help mantras. We need faith in the right place. We need faith in the right person. We all have deep down fears and worries. We worry and fear because we aren't in control. Did you know there are over 500 recognizable phobias? Um, here's a few of the staff's phobias. So top left corner, is that your top left corner? Yes, top left corner. We've got a guy cramped in a small space. Um, who do you think's phobia that is? It's of a shot out or a hand or something. Oh, there we go. Well done. Go and speak to Mark about that afterwards. Then the next one is heights. Who would that be? Oh, Kathy's on the ball. <laughs> now the thing about my, I don't like heights, but what terrifies me even more is if you stand on a height and you try and throw something down. There's something that just does something in my stomach. I can't handle that. If I'm up in the loft and I have to throw empty boxes down, I just can't do it. I have to kind of go to the side and just kind of kick them off backwards or something. It's very weird. Uh, bottom left, those are fish eating the dead skin off your feet. Oh, yes, Kathy got one wrong. <laughs> That's Wellesley. And then Helen's one, I think, is probably the weirdest. Helen has a phobia for that little black dotty thing at the base of a pepper. Uh, when she emailed me the picture, because I was like, what are you on about? She emailed me that picture, and she said she had to close her eyes the whole way. I'm not quite sure how that worked. Um, but these aren't the kind of fears that Mark is talking about in this passage. Some of these fears are debilitating, but this is not the kind of fears that Mark is on about. In this passage, we're thinking about our fears that drive our decisions. They demand our attention and cause us to worry about life. Is it your aged parents, bullies at school, finances, a sick child, death, crime? Or maybe you're worried about what your friends or colleagues think about you. That's your deep fear. Think about it. What is your deep fear? We all have them. Sometimes they're harder to find than others. Think about something that you're worrying about. What is it that you're most worried about? There's a very good chance that there's a fear hiding 
beneath that worry somewhere. In the stunned silence, after the storm is calmed, the terrified disciples, they ask each other the next question. Who is this? Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? It's such a good question. And Mark wants to ask us that question. He wants us to answer that question. Mark is saying, who do you think Jesus is as you're reading this gospel tract? But Mark withholds his answer because he wants us to come to the conclusion. He's still building his case. Remember we're in the section 1 to 8, chapters 1 to 8, and we're still in the process of discovering who Jesus is. But this miracle is more than a large clue. It's a megaphone. It's obvious. Jesus is shouting out in this passage, I am God. So remember the Arnie fans in the clip we saw earlier? They were expecting a wax statue, and they got so much more. After the screams, I'm sure there was cuddles and hugs and autographs and all those kinds of things. What were the disciples expecting? They've seen Jesus, they've heard Jesus' teaching, they've seen all his miracles, and I think they're still thinking he's just a special man, he's still just a prophet. But in this moment, I think things are starting to change for these guys. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. You see, the creator has come to earth and he controls it with a word, just as he had done at the beginning in creation. See, creation was created through the power of a spoken word. No toil, no effort, just words. Just as he held back the Red Sea, just as he controlled the plagues in Egypt, Jesus controls creation like an obedient little puppy. He can do it because he is God. There's so many times in Mark's gospel where we see that Jesus is God. There's no hiding from the fact. In Mark's gospel, two titles are given to Jesus. And Jesus self-applies them as well. That is, Son of God... And son of man. The first century Jew would have understood son of God to mean Messiah or God incarnate. And as we see, Mark starts with his gospel in the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the son of God. The pivotal point in the gospel comes in Mark chapter 8 with Peter's confession. Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter says those wonderful words. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And then go all the way to the end of the gospel. A few verses from the end. We have the climatic testimony of the soldier at the cross. Surely this was the Son of God. Only God can calm the storm the way Jesus did. 
he is God. The disciples are in the boat with God. And they tremble. I missed a bit. Son of man. Let's come back to that. The son of man has double meaning. It's meaning that Jesus was a human being. It's also saying, according to Daniel 7, that Jesus is the exalted heavenly one. It's Jesus' self-appointed title. And he means to communicate both of these ideas. And we're seeing both of these ideas in this passage. He's a man. He gets tired. But he's God. He can calm the storm. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And Mark wants us to see that Jesus is God. So the disciples tremble because they're in the boat with God. They're afraid of the storm, but they tremble at being in the boat with Jesus. Why is that? It's because they're cottoning on to who Jesus is. They're recalling creation. They're remembering the parting of the Red Sea. They're remembering the desperate pleas from the demons as Jesus Jesus calls them out. Calls like in 3.11, the demons shout, You are the Son of God. All of these things are starting to make sense. The disciples are in the presence of God and they're terrified. In the Bible, most times somebody comes into the presence of God. What is their response? It's fear and trembling. It's because of a realization of their guilt and that they're in the presence of a holy, powerful God. It's the Isaiah 6-5 fear in Isaiah's commission. He meets God in his throne room. This is what Isaiah says. Woe to me. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The disciples have this Isaiah 6-5 fear. Now this is a, a far inferior situation to illustrate. But it's been caught red-handed with your hands in a cookie jar, realizing you're not wearing any trousers, and you're standing there in your boxes before your headmaster or boss, knowing you're going to be fired or expelled, and all is lost. That just terrifies me. The disciples share this fear. It's the fear of the Lord. It's a good, right response to God. God is loving and kind, but God is also dangerous. God is dangerous because he is holy and perfect and powerful. And the fear of the Lord is simply recognizing who God is. Now, we don't need to fear God if we trust in Jesus. But we should always know our place. And that's what it means to fear the Lord, to know our place. The disciples are fearful of Jesus more than they are of the storm because they now realize they're standing in the boat in the presence of Almighty God. They know it's clear 
if ever saying OMG was appropriate, this was the time. This was it. The disciples are standing in the boat with God. So then, Jesus does care. And Jesus is God. We're not in control. But God is. Jesus is. Take a look at Psalm 107. It's worth turning there. Psalm 107 verse 28. Does this sound familiar at all? Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. Jesus, don't you care if we drown? And he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. Quiet. Be still. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. Jesus is God, and he cares. There are over 300 commands in the Bible for God's people to not be afraid. More than any other command in the Bible. More than love your neighbor, more than love the Lord your God, more than obeying God, more than trusting God. Nearly every single time out of the 300 odd, it can be your homework if you like, you can go and look them all up, God backs the command with a reason. And it goes something like this. I am God. See how I have acted in the past. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Isn't it amazing to know that God is with us? Our biggest fear is God is there. God is with us. Jesus is with us and he is God. He is in control. Listen to your fear. Listen to our fear. We're not in control. Do you know Jesus as God? What a joy. Jesus is a savior. What a blessing. But if you don't, you've got to find out more. You've got to get to know Jesus as God, as the Son of Man, the great rescuer who came to redeem us, that you can share in this joy and that you can know Jesus as God in control. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're blown away by you. There's nothing normal about you. When we look at this passage, we just see how mighty you are. We see that you are God. We see that you're in control. What a joy to our hearts to know that we don't need to be in control. That we can hand our fears over to you. That you are trustworthy that you will deal with them. Father, help us to hand our fears over to you and to trust you. Amen.
We're going to continue praying. So just uh, as we continue to reflect on what God's been teaching us through that very familiar passage, just going to lead us in some prayers to help us to focus on the divinity of God, his great power, and on the humanity of God, the incredible love and care he has for us. So let's continue as we pray together. Father, thank you for that truth we learnt of earlier again, reminded that you are a God who just with a word spoke and the world came into being. That same God who in just a word spoke and you controlled that which you created. Father, forgive us where we have such a small view of you, of your incredible power, your sovereignty over everything that you have made. Please would you forgive us where we set ourselves up as Lord of our own lives and we don't trust you. Just in a moment of quiet, should we all in our hearts bring before the Lord situations this week where we've forgotten that Jesus is God. We've forgotten the incredible power that God has. And just in a moment of quiet, bring those prayers of confession before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we're thinking this morning and again tonight of what it means to fear you, to stand in awe and reverence before the creator of all things. And for all the things that are on our heart that we have been able to bring before you in that moment of quiet, Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. And we thank you for the incredible work of Christ who has paid for our sin, who's paid for our weakness, who's paid for our constant forgetting that we can be made right with you again. And Lord, we think of your humanity too. Thank you that you're not just a God of power, but you're a God who cares, a God of emotion, a God who gets the fears of our heart, a God who's experienced in the person of your son vulnerability and weakness and tiredness. Thank you, Father, that we can come to you just as we are. In our strength, but also in our weakness. Thank you, as we were reminded earlier, as we sung, you accept us just as we are. And Heavenly Father, I pray for us in this coming week that whatever it is that we may feel, the legitimate demands and fears in our life, that we would remember these two things, that you're a God who's in complete control. And you're a God who cares and we praise you for these things. And Father, we finally turn, as we will in a moment, to song. Thank you for this song that we're about to sing where the line goes, He will hold me fast. Thank you, Father, for what Grant helps us to remember again this evening that faith is not about the strength of our faith. It's about the object in which we place our faith. So, Father, for whatever it is that lies ahead in the week, and we thank you that you've already gone ahead into the week and you know what it is that we'll face. I pray that as we sing this song, we would have confidence that you are the God who will hold us fast. Thank you that our futures don't depend on us, but they fully depend on you. And thank you that when you are with us in the storm, it's the safest place that we can be. Thank you that you promise and will always hold us fast. Amen.